Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover Acts 10, verses 1 through 26. This, we have just left Peter off in Iapa as he traveled from Jerusalem. He went through Lydda, healed a man paralyzed for eight years named Aeneas. Then he went from Lydda to Iapa where he raised Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, from the dead. And he's there in Iapa. Meanwhile, up in Caesarea, about 30 miles north, there is a Roman centurion there, assigned there, named Cornelius. And Acts chapter 10 is about the story of the Gentiles really getting the gospel for the first time. And that's why it's included in Acts 10. That's why it's so important. And so that's our context. I'm only going to cover the story of how God arranged the meeting between Peter and Cornelius. In our next audio, covering the last part of chapter 10, we'll talk about how the Gentiles in Cornelius' house actually got saved and got baptized in the Holy Spirit and got baptized in water. So the most exciting part of the chapter is in the next audio, not this one, but it's interesting to see how God made the arrangements. We start with verse 1 in Acts 10. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Now Caesarea was a town 30 miles north of Yapa on the Mediterranean coast. It's on the plain of Sharon there, right there on the Mediterranean coast. It was the headquarters for the Roman occupation of Israel. If you remember during Jesus' crucifixion, Herod Antipas had come down from his bailiwick, his jurisdiction up in Galilee, had come down and was staying at Caesarea and then came on up to Jerusalem to deal with the crucifixion. So it was was an important place. It was also named Stratos Tower, had another name. It was named after Augustus Caesar because... Herod the Great loved Augustus Caesar, I should say, loved him. He was sucking up to him all the time. And so he built this place and named it Caesar, had a beautiful port. It's 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 the only town in Israel today owned by a private corporation, according to Wikipedia I just looked up. And uh, you can go there. The tourist people, it's a, it's a standard tourist place, and it's a really interesting place to go to. They got Roman amphitheaters, Roman statues everywhere. They got a one inscription that actually mentions the name Pontius Pilate. It shows you the stone levees that go out into the Mediterranean Sea to, as breakwaters to make a nice harbor there and so forth. Well, that's where Cornelius was, and he was Roman, and that, and that was the Roman place of occupation, so it made sense that he was there. Now, he was a centurion. What is a centurion? Well, let's briefly go through the Roman military organizations. Organization, a legion had about 6,000 men, and a legion had 10 regiments. That means every regiment had about 600 men. And then... A regiment had about six six centuries, which means that about uh, a, a, a unit of about 100 men apiece. So a centurion was head of 100 men, and he was the head of one-sixth of a regiment and one-sixtieth of a legion. So he was a relatively minor military officer. Now, the regiments, each remember each legion had... Ten regiments, and a regiment had about 600 men. Well, those 600 men usually had a name. This name was called the Italian Regiment. Paul mentions in Acts, or Luke mentions in, in recounting the story of Paul as he was heading to Rome, he was under the, under the care of the Imperial Regiment. So they had names. All right, so that's a little bit of background here. We go to Acts 10, verse 2. He, Cornelius, was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. Now, he was not a believer, but he nonetheless realized that the pagan Roman religion was not for him. And he was praying to the God that he didn't know, but he knew that he was out there. And 
that's what happens when you pray to God. You don't know who he is, but if you can pray to him, God will find a way to reveal himself to you. And we're going to see here in Acts 10, God did some remarkable stuff to get the gospel to Peter. That's why I always tell people when I'm witnessing to them and they start saying, well, I don't know. I don't know. I say, well, would you just do this for me? Pray that if God is real, he'll reveal himself to you. And if people sincerely pray that, God will do it. Now, of course, you'd, some people will say, yeah, I will. Then I ask him three months later, you've been praying that God would reveal yourself to you? Well, no, I, I got better things to do. Well, he's not going to reveal, reveal himself to people like that. But if you're sincere and praying to God, he's going to reveal himself to you. And this man was sincere. He was devout. He feared God. He reverenced God. Not only him, but his whole household. He managed to... Talk about God to his slaves and to his family. He also did charitable deeds. He he gave money, alms, I guess, to poor uh, Jewish people and so forth. But despite all of those good works, and I've study Bible points out, Cornelius still needed something more for peace with God. He knew it. You're never going. Good works are never going to get people peace with God. You have to have Jesus to have peace with God. Now he was a devout man, but notice that. The average Jew would call him uncommon and unclean, as John Gill points out, because he didn't keep the law. He was a Gentile. I mean, Jews wouldn't even go into the house of a Gentile. They considered them unclean. Now, Cornelius was probably not a full-fledged proselyte. Remember, there were two types of proselytes, proselyte of righteousness, proselyte of the gate. The proselyte of righteousness was basically a, a Gentile who became a full Jew. He got circumcised. He kept the law completely. A proselyte of the gate was somebody, if I remember correctly, who who kept some of the main major moral laws. Don't rape, kill, and steal, which anybody would do, of course. And uh, who who just had basic, who, who followed the basic requirements of the law. He was not a full-fledged proselyte. Apparently, Cornelius was not either one of these. He was not a proselyte at all. He just feared God. Whoever God was, he feared him. But he was not a Jew. He was not even a proselyte. And so that's why it was hard for Peter just to go on up there. And we'll see what God did in order to break down this wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, even the, and, become, and on the one hand, it was a disadvantage to him about hearing the oracles of salvation from the Jews. But once Cornelius and his household did get saved, that made him a great bridge to the Gentiles because he's a Roman. You know, now he can talk about, hey, this Jesus is for Gentiles too as well as Jews. I'm not a Jew, but look at me. I've been saved. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb and so forth. So he was praying, Cornelius was praying, and what an answer to his prayer he got. He had one of the early pillar apostles of the Jerusalem church come up to him and preach to him and get, get them all saved. We go to verse 3 in Acts 10. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Now, three in the afternoon shows that Cornelius was following Jewish practices. Again, I said he was not a proselyte, but he was still doing the Jewish-type things. He probably had been in Israel enough to realize that the Jews are worshiping a god that's a lot different than the Rogan, than Zeus, <laughs> a lot different. And so he said, well, I'm going to follow some Jewish practices to see if I can get close to this god. And one of those Jewish practices was at three in the afternoon, the Jews prayed. I just looked up on the internet about the Mincha, Min, Mincha, I guess is how you pronounce it, the afternoon prayer. It lasted between an, about a half hour after midday till sunset. It was considered a, and that's when they prayed in the afternoon. And so this is when Cornelius is praying. In Acts 3.1, we see that Peter and John, when they did their famous healing of the blind man at the beautiful gate, 
That was three in the afternoon, the hour of prayer, and Luke actually records it as the hour of prayer. Now, Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. So that was the standard time for praying. And while he was praying, Cornelius was praying, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who called out Cornelius. Now, this was a vision. It was not a dream. Dreams happen when you awake. Dreams happen when you sleep. And there's a third kind of state you can get in. That's a trance or a visionary state, state, as the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it. In a dream, you see things while you're sleeping. In a vision, you see things while you're awake, but that doesn't mean you necessarily lose consciousness of where you are. A visionary state means you're out of it. <laughs> you're zoned out, and you're completely caught up into the vision that you're seeing. Now, who was it? I think it was John Gill made the distinction of when you're in a vision, you see things real, like Cornelius actually saw an angel, an angel's real, but when Peter was in his visionary state in his trance, he saw things that weren't real, the sheet of unclean animals that came down, which we'll get to in a minute. I don't think that really is a distinction that would distinguish a vision in a visionary state, in my opinion not the content of the vision, but the state of the person receiving the information from God, I think distinguishes the two. But it doesn't matter how you get your information from God. You still have to distinguish, is this from God, or is it from the devil, or is it from my flesh? You're never going to get away from that. Why did the angel call out to Cornelius? Cornelius, why did he call his name? Well, here's some options. John Gill says the angel perhaps wanted Cornelius to understand that the angel knew him. So, hey, this is, I'm, you're not just seeing some random angel. You're seeing a ran, an angel that actually knows who you are. It perhaps could have been to show affection and friendship. Hey, hey, I know you get frightened when you see angels, Cornelius, but I'm your friend. It could be just to get his attention because Cornelius was so concentrated on praying, he might not have even seen the angel. Man had his eyes closed, and he's praying away, and all of a sudden the angel comes up, and Cornelius doesn't see him, and then the angel says, Hey, Cornelius, look over here, boy. That's John Gill's idea. Very well could be. We don't know. But at any rate, there's an establishment now of a relationship between an angel and Cornelius. Now, of course, what's the typical reaction when you see an angel is fear. Verse 4 in Acts 10, looking in intently at him, he, Cornelius, became afraid. Looking intently at the angel, Cornelius became afraid and said, What is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, this angel does everything he can to dis dissipate Cornelius' fear. He uh, applauds him for his prayers, his acts of charity. He doesn't say he's saved now, but he does say, but you have been doing some good stuff. And all that has come up before God, and God knows it. They've come up as a memorial offering. Memorial offering is a New Te Old Testament thing. As the NIV Study Bible points out, it was a portion of the grain offering burned on the altar. A grain offering was one of the standard uh, offerings in addition to the various meat offerings, animal sacrifices. In Leviticus 2.2 says this, And bring it to the Aaron's sons, the priest, bring the sacrifice. The priest will take a handful of fine flour and oil from it along with all its frankincense and will burn this memorial portion of it on the altar a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the Old Testament priest would take bread, then mix flour and oil, put some frankincense on the top of it, some perfume, and then they'd just throw it on the fire, on the altar, on the altar burnt offering there in the, in the um, courtyard, and it would go up to God. And it would go up to God, and this is, this is basically the symbolism is we are offering up ourselves to you as a sweet-smelling savor so that so that you can know that we are all yours. That's kind of the idea of it. And 
So the angel makes a great analogy here. He says, just as that sweet-smelling bread offering, grain offering with flour and oil and incense goes up to God, the same as you, your works and your charity have gone up to God. Now, that just shows that God likes good works. This is now remember this is good works by an unsaved person and even more so he likes good works by saved people. You're not saved by your good works, but he sure likes them. As I like to say, good works are not the root of your salvation, but they certainly are the fruit of your salvation. Now notice Cornelius calls him Lord. What is it, Lord? The Holman Christian Study Bible has Lord with a lowercase L. This just shows that Lord is oftentimes just an, a, a polite address like sir. It does not always mean Lord Jesus, as in God. Now, note that the King James here adds that Cornelius was fasting. The Holman Christian Study Bible and the NIV don't have it. They use different texts uh, uh, text to, to translate from. So whether he was fasting or not, I don't know. But we do know he was not satisfied with the state of his soul. So he was engaged in extraordinary prayer, as, as Clark says. And he got an extraordinary answer. Peter the Apostle shows up at his door. Now, that Lord there might not have been, it didn't have the meaning that the angel was God, but it did show childlike reverence and humility. And we see, uh, once again, I'll mention that Cornelius felt fear when he saw the angel, and that's and I said that's typical. Two examples of that are in Daniel. He saw an angel and hit the ground, and John in Revelation hit the ground with fear. So, yeah, you know, we tend to think, well, you know, in the Old Testament, I mean, in, the, in ancient times, people were so used to miracles. We, we're rationalists now. We don't see miracles anymore, and many of us don't even believe they exist anymore. Everything is natural order. I mean, half the Christian church is like that with all the cessationists and Christian deists out there. And we tend to think, well, they thought differently back then. They were open to miracles. Well, they were open to miracles and visions and such. But I'll tell you, when they happened, they were just as shocked about them as we would be when we see them today. So they didn't happen all the time. If they happened all the time, they they wouldn't be miracles, would they? They would just be commonplace occurrences not worthy of mention. So this was an unusual thing, is what I'm saying, to see this vision. We go to verses 5 and 6 in Acts 10. The angel continues talking to Cornelius. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who was also named Peter. Remember now, we've left Simon down there at Joppa after he's, where he's healed Tabitha in the last chapter. The angel continues, he, Peter, is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. So we got Simon Peter staying with si- Simon the tanner, the two Simons down there in Joppa. His house was by the sea because a tanner is a worker in leather goods and the business is nasty, has a lot of nasty chemicals and 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 uh, waste. And I bet he was polluting the Mediterranean Sea, but he, it smelled so bad he had to be away from the city. He was also unclean. We'd see Simon already was willing to stay in the house of an unclean Jew because when you touch the skin of dead animals, Levitically, you become unclean. And so, But Peter stayed there anyway. So it's not like Simon Peter was had a completely closed Jewish mind about dealing with unclean people, but he still had problems, as any Jew would, because it was so ingrained in them by their rabbinic teachers that the Gentiles were unclean, unclean, unclean. Now, one might ask, why did the angel send Cornelius up to Joppa to get, or send Cornelius' men up to Joppa to get Peter to come up to Caesarea to preach to them? Why didn't the angel just go ahead and tell the gospel message to Cornelius while he was talking to him. Now, that's an interesting question. John Gill answers it by saying, well, it's been given to men, not angels, to preach the gospel. That's just the way it is, folks. It's up to us to preach it, not angels. 
We go to verses 7 and 8 in Acts 10. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he, Cornelius, called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now he sent them the next day. It was three in the afternoon when he had the vision. He had to get the slaves, the, the two slaves and the soldier together. They would have to pack. He, they would have to tell them. They would just have to get ready for the journey. The sun is going to go down pretty soon here. They wouldn't have enough time before the sun went down, and they're not going to travel at night. So it was the next day, and we see it was in the next day when Peter had his vision. The next day when these two slave, two soldiers and, excuse me, two slaves and a soldier left Caesarea to go south to Joppa. Notice that the soldier was devout. Again, we have a Roman soldier who has renounced his Roman idolatry. And I'm sure it was through the influence of Cornelius. Now, why send three people? Why send two slaves and a soldier? Well, John Gill suggests it's to establish the truth with Peter because two or three witnesses was the Jewish legal requirement for proof. And just on a non-legal but just a practical basis, you get three people saying, oh, yeah, he's a good man. He, they had a vision. Want you to come up. We, we can vouch for that. Well, that would make Peter more willing to come. And remember, Peter's going to be reluctant to go to a Gentile's house. It could be that sending three people would show proper honor and respect to Peter, as John Gill says. A delegation is more honorable than a single messenger. Or, as Adam Clark says, it could be for safety on the roads. That's why Cornelius sent a soldier. Nobody's going to rob you, rob the two slaves if there's a soldier with them. And I think probably that's the real answer right there. All right, so the next morning, the two slaves and a soldier head out to Yapa. Now, the interesting thing is, Yapa is the same place that Jonah was sent to to preach to the Gentiles at Nineveh. And now, Yapa is now going to be the place where Peter is sent out to preach to the Gentiles at Caesarea. So this is a quite symbolic type of place to be sent out from. We go to Acts 10, verse 9. The next day, again, I said it was the next morning that they got up and went, and it was the morning because Peter is praying at noon, as we see here. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. As I said, the mincha, the prayer time in the afternoon, was was from about half an hour after midday till sunset, and that's so this is about noon, about midday. Peter was up there praying. He was on the housetop. Now remember, eastern housetops back then had roofs with outside stairways, as the NIV Study Bible points out the roof was a place for relaxation and privacy and being cool. So it was logical that Peter was up there. Now, note this time of praying in the noon. I realize that's a Jewish ritual, but, you know, we all have rituals. And I remember a lot of times I set my, in fact, even right now, I'm praying in the afternoon, not in the noon, just like Peter was. I, sh I wish I'd have thought about this earlier. If people ever would want to say, why are you praying in the afternoon? Nobody's ever said that to me. But I have a little voice in my mind saying it to me because I was raised. You need to pray in the morning before the work day so that God will get you ready for the nastiness that's going to happen during the day. And there's a lot of truth to that. The problem is I have a hard time getting up in the morning. Then I hear all these testimonies about people getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to pray. And I'm going, oh, God, no, not 4 o'clock in the morning. Not even 5 o'clock, not even 6 o'clock. And 7 o'clock is really pushing it even there, you know. That's just because I'm not, I don't do good. I'm a, I'm a night owl. That's just my circadian rhythms. I do better at night. And everybody's telling me I'm supposed to pray in the morning. And finally, one time it occurred to me, I said, you know, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible I'm supposed to pray in the morning. And if I'd have thought further, Peter's praying in, in noon. And Cornelius was praying at three in the afternoon. And look how they got their prayers answered. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. You can pray whenever you want to. Just pray. 
Acts chapter 10, verse 10. Then he, this is Peter in Yapa, on the rooftop, became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, that means the servants below, he went into a visionary state. Now, why was Peter hungry? Well, because it was typical in the east not to eat breakfast, to eat a small meal at lunch and eat a heavy meal at night. That's very similar to how I do, and that's why I have trouble keeping my gut down. You wonder how the Jews kept themselves fit eating like that, because that's not the best way to eat if you want to lose weight, but that's the way they ate back then. And so it's not surprising that Peter had not eaten. John Gill also says there might be more than just custom. It might be because religious Jews ate nothing before the great Minshaw, the afternoon prayer. They didn't, um, if you're very religious and devout and, and following the Jewish law, which Peter was, of course, they typically didn't eat anything before they prayed in the middle of the day. And we notice here that Peter is in a visionary state. I just mentioned the distinction between a dream, vision, and a visionary state, which is the Home of Christian Study Bible translation for a trance. I think you can probably, I'm not sure, but probably make a distinction between having a vision where you just see something or where you go into a visionary state where you're just out of it. I don't know what Paul was when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He might have been out of it and in a trance. I don't know. But anyway, Peter goes into his trance. Trance sounds kind of zombified, kind of occult. Maybe that's why the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as visionary state. It's much more elegant and refined. Acts 10, verse 11. He, Peter, saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. Now we see that, in the next verse, we'll see that large sheet has full of unclean animals, and they were coming down from heaven, which shows that, hey, God is behind this. God is behind this vision, because these unclean animals are coming out of heaven. That's where God is. And the sheet was lowered by its four corners. Adam Clark makes a speculation that perhaps the four corners were an emblem of the four corners of the earth to where the gospel would be preached to all, to all the Gentiles. I don't know about that. It sounds to me like it's just an incidental detail as mentioned, so I think Clark might have over-speculated a little bit, in my humble opinion. But at any rate, down the sheet comes. We go to verse 12 in Acts 10. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth, and the birds of the sky. Now, four-footed animals included both clean and unclean animals, according to Leviticus 11, as the NIV study Bible, Clark and... Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all point out. Why clean and unclean animals? Well, the clean animals represented the Jews. They were Levitically clean. The unclean animals represented the Gentiles. And that's the whole point of this vision. The whole point of the chapter 10 that Luke put it in here is to show the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. And that was the hardest thing for the early Jewish church to do is to recognize that this gospel is universal. It's for the whole world, not just for the Jews. So the middle wall of partition had been pulled down. This vision is what that's what this vision is doing. It's pulling down that middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. We go to verse 13. Then a voice said to him, This is a voice in the vision, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Maybe Peter was on his knees praying when the vision came, John Gill said. Maybe inside the vision he's kneeling or, or lying on his face. And it was inside the vision that he was supposed to get up and kill and eat. It's hard to say what the boundaries are between. Are the sensible world and the visionary state. But at any rate, Peter is supposed to make an affirmative action here. Go up and kill those unclean animals and eat them. I, I note here, I can't help but noting that any animal activist, animal rights activist who might say that it's wrong to kill an animal 
And I don't know how many of those there are out there. There are some. The PETA people, for example, are pretty extreme about that. Well, they're just wrong. There ain't nothing wrong with killing an animal. All you Bambi lovers out there. I mean, I live this bunch of, I live in the middle of the country and there's deer everywhere. I've almost been killed by deer. I hit, they've, they've cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars of damage to my cars. I have a very realistic opinion about deer. I like them. I like to watch them as they walk through my yard and they come out of the woods. But there ain't nothing wrong with killing them. And nothing in the Bible says wrong with killing an animal. And here we have God in a vision telling his apostle, one of the leading apostles of the early church, go out and kill an animal. So, I mean, it's one thing. You want to be a vegetarian, that's fine if it's a dietary thing. But if you're a veg vegetarian as a moral religious thing and say it's wrong to kill an animal, well, then you have just crossed yourself with the revealed word of God. That's all I can say. All right, but that's not the main point here. The main point is, Peter, don't worry about the uncleanness of these reptiles, these snakes, these turtles, these salamanders, these these black little spiders or whatever else was in that sheet. Kill them and eat them. You know, I taught this passage to a Chinese person one time. It was so funny because I was trying to tell them about how awful all this unclean animals would have been to Peter. I said there were snakes in there and spiders. And, and the Chinese person said, what's wrong with eating those? I thought, well, you know, that's a good point, because when I was in China, they ate all that stuff all the time, didn't think a thing about it. But a Jew would. So we go now to verse 14 in Acts 10. No, Lord, Peter said. Now, we don't know whether the Lord is Jesus or God, but whoever, Peter says, no. Now, then that's something. God tells you something in a vision. The first thing you say to him is, no, I'm not going to listen to what you say. <laughs> you're talking to God, and you're going to say, God, I'm not going to do what you say. Well, God often asks people to do difficult things. Remember, he asked Jesus to die in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked Ananias to go pray for Paul, who had been going around killing Christians, and Ananias was a Christian. That was a difficult thing. Ananias bucked up at it in our last chapter in Acts 9. Jesus said, Lord, if it's not your will, take this away. If it's your will, take this cup away, away from me. And Peter says, no, Lord, I ain't going to do it. He says in verse 14, For I have never eaten anything un anything common and ritually unclean. Why, did, why was Peter so adamant about refusing a direct command from God? Because he was so deeply ingrained with the laws of clean and unclean. He was a devout Jew. A learnt, a, a, well, he was just Jewish to his core. John Gill points out this shows that Peter was still, had, was still closely adhering to the ceremonial law. He didn't realize that that law had been abolished by Christ. When Peter used that term, I've never eaten anything common. Common means things in general use among the Gentiles. Jameson Fawcett and Brown, quoting two old theologians, Webster and Wilkerson, uh, says this, quote, The distinction of meats was a sacrament of national distinction, separation, and consecration. That's how you knew whether you were a Jew, whether you'd eat these unclean meats or not. This was hard on Peter. We go to verse 15 in Acts 10. Again, a second time, a voice said to him, it was either God or Jesus, said to him, What God has made clean, you must not call common. Don't call these animals common, Peter. <laughs> They're clean, these snakes, these, these scorpions, these salamanders, these turtles, these reptiles, these alligators, these crocodiles. Uh-uh, they're clean. Now, of course, the point is not about animals. The point is, Gentiles. God has made Gentiles clean. Don't call them common. Go out and witness to them. 
Jesus has already laid the groundwork for setting aside the laws of clean and unclean, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Let me read you some scriptures, too. Matthew 15, 11, Jesus is speaking. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. The heart is what matters, the inside of a man, not, not the food that the spiritual part of a man is what matters, not the food that goes inside a man. Verse 1 Timothy 4, 3-5, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, he's complaining about legalists. He says, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God in my prayer, even if it is a snake or a bullfrog or a little scorpion like the restaurants in Hong Kong. Or how about monkeys with their brains cut out and boiled? That's been known to be eaten in Hong Kong, too. Well, I will never, I mean, I might be aesthetically turned off by that. Oh, how about cats and dogs like in southern China? I remember going by a restaurant and seeing in Chinese on the side of the restaurant, dog meat served here dog meat fido being eaten in a restaurant that's okay if it's sanctified by the word of god in my prayer eat it it's perfectly all right nobody should ever criticize a chinese person for eating all this crazy stuff to eat i mean I, there was another guy his name was philip and i was talking to him about how i was in the south of china the southern chinese eat so much stuff that the people in northern china think they're crazy just like we do and I was talking to Philip about the stuff that they ate down in the South. He was a Southern Chinese guy. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I eat all that stuff. He says, I like rats, too. I said, rats? Please don't tell me that. He said, oh, yeah, I've eaten them many times. He said, if you just cook them thoroughly, they taste just like chicken. I said, well, to each his own. So anyway, it's not what goes into the body that defiles you. It's, it's you know, it's what comes out of your heart, out of your mouth. So, so. This is the second time that, that either God or Jesus told Peter this. It's not enough, though, because we go to Acts 10, verse 16. This happened three times, and then the object was taken up into heaven, the sheet full of animals taken back up into heaven. Where it came from, because this was God. You know, these unclean animals were gods, just like these Gentiles were gods. Now, either the sheet came down one time and the voice spoke three times, or either the sheet was let down three times and the voice spoke each time. I don't know. But the three times was for emphasis because Peter needed it because he just did not want to go into a Gentile house. In fact, you remember that the Jews would not even go into Pilate's house when they were trying to crucify Jesus. So Pilate had to leave his house and go out and talk to him on the front on the pavement because Jews just didn't go into Gentiles' houses. We go to verses 17 through 20 of Acts 10. While Peter was deeply perplexed about the vision he had seen, what about what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. Now remember, those are the two slaves and the soldier. They were Gentile, devout Gentile, non-believers, but God-fearing probably, at least the soldier was. They stood at the gate. They had come down from Caesarea. They stood at the gate at Peter's, at Simon the Tyner's house where Peter was staying in Yapa, 30 miles south. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, he's up on the roof while the, while the three messengers from Cornelius are down at the, at the door. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Remember, he, 
<laughs> the vision came for the purpose of getting rid of Peter's doubts about going to see a Gentile. And now he's got a communication from the Spirit. Don't have any doubt about this. I want you to go up there to Cornelius' house. Now, the Spirit told him, of course, the, I always ask the question, how is that? And this is especially relevant today because there's so many people saying they're so scared of, of super spiritual revelations and getting in the flesh that they won't even acknowledge that the Christians can be led by the Spirit. Well, how how was Peter led by the Spirit? He's already had a vision, but now he could either was an articulate voice, John Gill speculates, or maybe it was an impulse on his mind. We don't know. But I will tell this, tell you this, being led by the Spirit is something that takes practice. You're going to have to do it. You have to say, God, check me in my spirit. Make me feel miserable and uneasy and take away the peace of Christ that guards my heart if I'm about to do something that's wrong. And my next-door neighbor, a good friend of mine, was doing a talk on trichotomy and dichotomy at a theology night meeting I have here at my house. And by golly, did he do a good job after we finished going through all the scriptures and arguing that fine point of theology. And he was a trichotomist, and he says, but just think about the experience of it all. When sometimes you get to where you have to shut your mind down and just say, Jesus, tell me. And it's revealed to you in your spirit. He said, that's subjective, but that's it's nonetheless true. And it really is true. I, I don't tell if I, I would never tell somebody, you know, the spirit told me to do this or do that. I don't like to do that because I can't prove it. And people and I might and if I make a mistake, I might lead somebody astray. And people say that all the time. Oh, God led me to do this. God led me to marry somebody that's not a Christian and all this nonsense or even things that aren't obviously unscriptural. Uh, and so it gives the spirit a bad name when Christians do that. And so I don't do it. I'm just too embarrassed to do it. But nonetheless, I believe in internal leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe it's just in your mind. I believe that the Spirit will illuminate your mind and say, do this or do that. I pray all the time, God, give me information about this problem I got here. Let me let it show up on the Internet. Let somebody call me and tell me. However you want to get the message to me, because I don't know. I don't know what I should do or what I should think or, or which procedure I should engage myself in, so tell me. Well, anyway, so I think it's something, it's a spiritual discipline that we need to learn to be led by the Spirit. Peter was led by the Spirit here. We go to verses 21 and 22 and 23. Then Peter went down to the men and said, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with a whole Jewish nation. You notice they're really giving Cornelius a good character reference here because they want Peter to come up there, and they know that he's not likely going to come up there unless he knows that this is a legit invitation. All right, so they continue. This man, who has Cornelius, who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel. Ooh, that's even more of a character reference. To call you to his house and to hear a message from you. It's a pretty straightforward revelation of what happened up there in Caesarea. Verse 23, Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. Now, when he invited them in, of course, that's the, taking the first step towards accepting Gentiles. Because remember, Jews didn't let Gentiles into their houses, but Peter did. So he's already... He's already staying at the home of an unclean tanner, Simon the Tanner, and now he's letting in unclean Gentiles. He's getting there, and he's because he's had those three, those uh, he's seen that remarkable vision with the unclean animals that helped him get there. And so the next day, in verse 28, he Peter got up and set out with them, with them, with the two slaves and the soldier, the two unbelieving. Uh, Gentile slaves and the Roman soldier that had come down from Caesarea. Peter gets out and goes with them and also some of the brothers from Joppa. So Peter took, uh, he took three brothers from Joppa who believed. How do we know there are three? 
because in Acts 11:12, when Peter is telling this remarkable story to the church back in Jerusalem, we read this in Acts 11:12. Then the Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all, no doubt. These six brothers accompanied me when we went into the man's house. Now, he's, they weren't brothers at the time. They became brothers later, of course. And so Peter is speaking a little bit anachronistically here. But the six brothers are the two Gentile slaves of Cornelius, the devout soldier of Cornelius. That's three. And then if there's a total of six besides Peter, that means there's three brothers, Christian Jewish brothers from Yapa. So we got Jews, a delegation of Jews and Gentiles heading up to Caesarea. Notice that the testimony that the two slaves, the two servants and the soldier gave to Peter when they said that Cornelius was an upright and God-fearing man with a good reputation. They knew Cornelius. They lived with him. And so their testimony was credible. They knew what they were talking about. We go to Acts 10, verses 24, 25, and 26, and we'll shut this particular audio down. The following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, of course, to get for the 30 miles, they were walking now, or riding on a donkey or whatever, from Caesarea to Joppa, and, and it took a while. They got there about midday. They talked to Peter, and, and Peter gave him some refreshment. By the time they were getting ready to go back up there, it was too late again. They're not going to travel at night, so they waited till the next day. The next day they got up, those seven people, Peter, three brothers brothers from Joppa, three brothers from Caesarea, two slaves and a soldier, and they all got up, and that company of seven went and entered into Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends, so now he's getting ready to have a meeting here. It wasn't just his household, now he's got his relatives and his, and his buddies, his close friends there at the house at Caesarea. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. Ooh, worshipped? Now, of course, you can say that was just giving great honor to a great man. I don't think so. Verse 26, Peter helped him up and said, Stand up. I myself am also a man. Now, here's some options as to what Cornelius, Cornelius thought when he saw Peter. The NIV Study Bible suggests that Cornelius thought that Peter was an angel or a god. John Gill denies that. He says... Cornelius is too devout to believe something like that. Well, I don't understand Gil's logic. Just because you're devout, seems to me that being devout might make you want mortal to believe that we've got some kind of an angel here. Because he'd just seen an angel in a vision, right? Maybe this is another angel showing up. He was he was expecting something supernatural. I don't, I don't have a problem. I don't think Gil's logic is sound here. I think that the NIV Study Bible is probably accurate here by saying that Pete that Cornelius thought that Peter was either an angel or a god. But at any rate, whichever way it goes, if indeed that were the case, that Cornelius was thinking wrongly about Peter, Peter wanted Peter wanted no chance of misunderstanding, and he says, uh-uh, I'm a man, I'm not an angel. John Gill argued on the other side, saying that, that Cornelius is just trying to show honor. His, his first argument is that a devout man like Cornelius wouldn't make a mistake in thinking that Peter was a god. But he also makes the argument that prostrations to superiors were common in all Asiatic countries. And so they're in the east there and people prostrated themselves in the east. But cutting it, and so that could have just been a mark of honor when Cornelius prostrated himself. But cutting against that is Cornelius is not an eastern man. He, among Greek, he was a Roman and among Greeks and Romans... Prostration was was reserved for gods, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. And besides, Peter says, hey, I'm a, I'm, myself, I'm also a man. It sounds like Peter took him to be worshipped. Now, of course, Peter could have made a mistake and misinterpreted what Cornelius was doing. I realize that. 
But it just seems to me that Cornelius was giving too much divine honor to Peter, and Peter was trying to forestall that. And besides, as I said, bowing was for Romans believed bowing was for God, and Cornelius was a Roman. Now, you could argue, well, he was a Roman, but he'd been living in, in, in Israel for how long. He might have picked up some of the local customs and just started bowing to show honor. Could be. But at any rate, that's a minor point. The point is, as Peter says, uh-uh. I'm just the messenger. When Peter healed people, remember, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. When he healed Aeneas, uh, Aeneas at Lydda, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. He was very careful not to take honor. He did the same thing when he healed the lame man at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 4. Uh, he would always constantly say, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He did everything he could to take attention away from himself when he was doing miracles or when he was preaching the gospel as in here all right we now have peter introduced to cornelius we're all set up for a great evangelistic meeting which is about to occur we'll take that up in the next audio as we start with verse 27 and go to the end of the chapter in acts 10 and we'll see we'll see the house of cornelius saved baptized in the holy spirit and baptized in water hope to see you then hope you enjoy this audio